Uh, if you were here last week, um, you know that we uh, kind of finished up a series on Easter, and you know we were talking about how God's victorious, um, that the resurrection's real, and that we have the power of the resurrection in our lives by the power of the Spirit. Um, but that's uh, that's that's highly debatable. Uh, in fact, if you were here last week and you were like, "Yeah, maybe," I promised you that we were going to start a series. Um, called Reasonable obje- Objections, where we're talking about, we're looking what the Bible has to say, really, about uh, the, some of the more controversial issues, some of the things where, where normal Americans uh, might just raise their hand and be like, oh, stop, not, nope, that, you're wrong. And maybe uh, if, you're, if, that, if that's you, then uh, this series is for you. Uh, I'm hoping that you'll see in the, in the midst of this that actually uh, faith makes a lot of sense. That, um, that th- there are those objections, but really um, the Bible is, is stronger than those objections, and we can get beyond those objections. Um, if you're already a committed believer, I hope that um, this will be some, maybe some ammo for you and maybe an opportunity to start inviting people that you know are skeptical and say, hey, hey, uh, the leader guy is going to say some stuff about skepticism, and, and I know you've got these object- objections. I'd like, uh, maybe you should check it out. This week... Um, we're going to talk about probably the, one of the, the biggest objections to Christian faith in the 21st century educated West. And that is the objection that was made in Nacho Libre. When, uh, if you haven't seen this movie, Jack Black is a Mexican wrestler slash, I guess, friar uh, in Mexico. And, uh, and his buddy, his, his wrestling partner, um, is not a believer. And Nacho Libre is like, is like, I must baptize you. And so he baptizes him. And the guy's like, no, you can't. Why? I believe in science. I don't need faith. I don't need religion. I believe in science. And there's a strong sense uh, that, that, you know, there's, there's the people of faith and they believe in unicorns and fairies and, you know, la-la land. And then there's the people of science, the real world, and they believe in, you know, spaceships and motor cars, and ne'er the twin shall meet, right? That's kind of a, a, a sense that we have, and, and you can see why that might be, because when you look in holy texts, it seems like you read a lot of stuff about, like, you know, magic happening. And maybe a, a person who's skeptical, who's like, well, that's, not, that's not what I see, that's not what I experience on a day-to-day basis. In fact, that seems ridiculous to me. Well, what I'm going to argue today is I'm going to argue that actually um, the Bible's basic orientation towards the universe is pretty much the same as a physicist. And that you don't actually have to hold these two things at odds, that they're actually in agreement. There are points of tension, we'll talk, that, we'll talk about that, but you don't have to check your brain at the door when you come into church. Instead, you can be fully intellectually engaged and you can have a world that's more coherent, more inclusive, and explains more than you would have if you just, if you just took your, your physics and chemistry textbooks. And so to do that, let's, uh, let's look at Proverbs. Proverbs 8. This is a, an awesome, one of my favorite passages in Proverbs. It's uh, from the perspective of Lady Wisdom. Wisdom has been personified in this uh, text. This is a poem, but poems are true. Just because you're a poem doesn't mean you're not literally true. It just means that you're a poem. Um, but it does mean that some of the language is a little flowery. But uh, let's read this together. It says, uh, The Lord, Yahweh, possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I, wisdom, have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever even an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. 
Before the mountains had settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. Really, this is the language of birth. I was, I was given birth. It's a hole in the, uh, in the Hebrew. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primeval dust of the world. Really, dry land is probably a better translation there. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters would not transgress his commands, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, during that time I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited worlds, and my delight was with the sons or children of men. It's, uh, it's kind of a wild. There's the language. It's a little weird there, too. I mean, drawing faces, circles on the water. Like, it gets a little confusing. Part of that is uh, the translation. Um, but even uh, more contemporary translations still are a little bit confusing. It's hard to know what it means that, like, he established the clouds or that, you know, strengthened the fountains of the deep. We'll talk about that. But first, I want you to notice the very beginning. What's the, what's the, the language here? Me, possess me. This is wisdom, lady wisdom. But, but notice the most important thing is when is wisdom? Right? When does she come on the scene? Well, she, her, her point is I come on the scene before anything else. Before there's an earth, before there's a universe, before there's fountains and hills and valleys, mountains. Before any of that, I was born. Sort of, if, if, you know, God, God brought me forth first. Why does that matter? Well, uh, I used to be uh, young and naive. I used to think that, uh, let's just say, let's just say we decided, hey, we're going to plant a church. We're going to plant a church in San Clemente. And we find a, a plot of land. And if we come up with the $75 trillion it would cost to buy that land. And then we're like, okay, now let's build a church, right? So what do we need? Well, it's easy. We just need uh, blueprints, right? Does that have a picture of that? I thought I had a picture of that. There it is. You just get, you get your blueprints. Um, so Glenn uh, here is a resident architect. So Glenn goes home and he draws up a church. And then uh, we get all the guys together on a, on, a, on a Saturday and we decide, let's start constructing. Let's make the church, right? That's how you do. That's how you build in America, right? Yeah, if it's like 1830, but see, in the real world here in the 21st century, what you actually need to know before you begin any blueprints, before you begin anything else, <laughs> what does the city say? And if the city of San Clemente, they're like, are you kidding me? Get out of here. We haven't had a new building. Oh, you know what they did? They, uh, they had the, um, the outlets. They built the outlets. Somebody got paid. Somebody's, somebody's palms were greased to make that happen. Other than that, nothing gets built in San Clemente. Why? Because there's regulations. Regulations are what the government sets up beforehand to say, this is what's okay, this is what's not. All right? Um, if you're going to have a house, it's got to be in this type of style, but not this type. You know, you can't have a Victorian mansion in the middle of San Clemente. It doesn't fit the vibe of the city. Right? And if you do build there, you're going to have to have an outlet every so many feet. And your windows are going to have to be this type of size. Th these regulations determine what's possible and what's not. Okay? The, be, before, the, these are the kind of the framework that you, your creativity can run through. So in the case of St. Clemente, as, as Glenn, the architect, knows, it means your basically your hands are tied. And all you can do is sort of tear your hair out and wish that there was a different government. 
For God, it's similar, right? God creates wisdom, or the wisdom of God is first, right? And the wisdom of God is kind of that framework through which all of the creation is going to be created. This is the first thing in your note sheets. The Bible depicts God's wisdom as the regulations within which the world is created. So the world's going to be created, but it's not going to be like this. It's not going to be like that. It's going to conform to a set of not rules necessarily, but a, a certain aesthetic, a kind of way of going about things that fits with God's wise plan, God's wisdom. Now, if you were here for our, uh, our Christmas series, we talked a lot about the Proverbs, and you noticed that the Proverbs don't just say it's this way and not that way. You know, they don't just say it's this, 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 and this. They say sometimes it's this and sometimes not. There's an interesting harmony to the Proverbs. And I think that comes out in the next section of our text. Let's take a look at this. While as, while he, is, uh, while as he had yet not... Blah, blah, while as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primeval dust, again, that's really more probably dry land of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters would not go beyond his you know, commands, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Language is a little weird here. But um, I think what's going on is it's sort of a poem. It's sort of asking you to imagine. Sort of imagine that you're on a ship or you're on a boat. And you're so far from land that when you turn around, 300, all you see is water. Okay? So if you're in that place, then, then you can literally say, you, you're standing there and you turn around. He, there's literally a circle that's been drawn. What we think of as the horizon, right? On the face of the deep. Uh, that's, okay, why would God do that? Well, imagine it's a calm day, right? Everything's fine, you're on the boat, you know, you're fishing, whatever, but you look around, it's all, it's flat. Okay? Now, um, the word established there can actually, uh, it gets used a lot to mean like thicken or, um, you know, like, uh, like, like smush. Uh, and so maybe what you're imagining then is you're on the boat and everything's flat, but then you look and you see um, the clouds above, right? And the clouds start out wispy, right? But then they start to like, they start to thicken up. They start to get smushed together and maybe even change color. They were white, now they're starting to get kind of gray, right? Now they're getting really dark gray. The fountains of the deep, um, he strengthened them. Uh, maybe uh, strengthened might be, might be like like supercharged them or empowered them, right? And if you imagine like uh, the, at the bottom of the ocean, like, like, like large gusts of water, almost like fountains kind of pushing up, right? And so you were there and you were looking around, everything was flat. Now everything starts to look like this, right? In fact, you're, you're starting to see where the horizon was here. Now the horizon's right there and you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I hope I, I mean, I could capsize. We're going on a cruise in June. I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about, like, texting pictures like this to Aaron. <laughs> Just so it really mess with her, you know. Imagine you're on that boat, too. Like, I've, uh, I've been in, um, I've been on a, a plane with some turbulence. Aaron's been on a plane where, like, it's literally gone, you know, where the people are literally screaming and crying out prayers because they think we're all going to die. Um, that's a, that's a crazy place to be in, but... If you're on a cruise ship, normally on a cruise ship, everything's like just flat because we have, you know, we have radar and satellites and so they can usually avoid. But every once in a while, every once in a while, you find yourself in that position where it, this was the horizon. Now the horizon's up here. 
And you're like, is there any, is there any safety? Is there any place to go? Well, did you notice that there's a limit to the sea, right? So even though there is this, like, it starts out like this, and then it kind of goes like this, there's also a place where the sea stops, namely the land, where God has established the foundations of the earth. Uh, on the right there is a hole in the fence, Capo, Capo Beach. Um, we drove by there uh, a couple days ago. Um, if you don't know, our church used to have a, um, like we would do uh, beach nights at Hole in the Fence for years. You can't do that anymore because it's been like eroded. Like the, 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 the waves have crashed and broken and the rocks are like sharp. and ter- the, the, the sea has damaged stuff. But it can only go so far. So kind of take this in, 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 the, in the whole. Wisdom is kind of, you know, God's creating through wisdom. And, and what that means is the world has this interesting harmony where normally things are very predictable, right? You look around, the, the ocean's flat. It's very, there's a horizon, there's a circle. It's very predictable and normal. It's unified, it's simple. It, it follows patterns that are easy to discern. But sometimes, sometimes things get a little awry. Sometimes the clouds thicken up. Sometimes the waves start going. Sometimes things get a little bit crazy. There's, there's chaos. There's a variety. There's possibility. Some of it's scary. Some of it's amazing. But it doesn't go so far that it's like completely out of control. Right? There is an end to where the craziness of the sea stops, namely the land. And that's not going to change. And you see this harmony that, that wisdom is, is, is saying, this is what the natural world is like. It has these patterns. It has these, these structures. It has these predictabilities. But it also has complexities and nuances and things that are chaotic and surprising. It's the next thing, your no sheets. The Bible depicts the world as structured and patterned, but with lots of room for variety and possibility. you might be forgiven for noticing that this is pretty much exactly what the scientists will tell you about the world. At the macro level, we have Newtonian mechanics. Um, and the engineers here in this congregation depend on that. If we're going to put solar panels on top of Capo right over there, we need to be able to do the math and make sure that it works. And it does work every single time. And yet, the physicists tell us that if you get down to quantum level, it's unicorns and rainbows, no one knows what the heck is going on. Moreover, if you get to the cosmic level, we have no idea, or very little idea, how gravitational power and force changes time and light and, 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 and mass. It's, it's, it seems mind-boggling and bizarre. So there's this weird, like, juxtaposition in our own world of something that's very Patterns, very structured, predictable, and yet at the same time, down here, very chaotic and, and, and creative and possible, and up there, very variegated and wild. I would suggest to you that the Bible basically understands the universe pretty much exactly the way that a modern physicist would. There's two differences, of course. One is that the modern physicist might be a little uncomfortable with the idea of God intervening, God being a part and doing wild things. I could see that. Another interesting thing, though, is that the physicist can tell you that, yeah, there is pattern, there is harmony, there's structure, and there's chaos and creativity, and we're not sure how those things mesh, but the physicist can't tell you why. The physicist cannot tell you why the universe is like that. They're just going to say, well, it is. It just is. It is. 
The Bible takes the next step and says, I'll tell you why. Let's go on uh, into the, in the text. Then I, wisdom, was beside him as a master craftsman. And I was daily his delight. Uh, this, uh, this translation, I was daily his delight, um, that his, there, that's been added by the translators because they weren't sure what to make of this Hebrew. It's sa'asasim uh, yom yom. It means delight day by day. Sa'asusim yom yom. They weren't sure what to make of the idea of wisdom being delighted day by day. They weren't sure to understand like how wisdom, uh, you know, is, is this craftsman creating all of this stuff and making it happen in these intricate, wacky ways. And, and what they, they don't understand, this is not, this is not, wisdom is not just God's delight. I mean, God is delighted in wisdom, but wisdom herself is being personified as just having a ball. Like a master craftsman, a master artist. Imagine wisdom as this master artist going in and just having a ball. That's really, if I were going to you know, gloss it, I would say, and I was having a ball every day, rejoicing always before God as I was doing all this cool stuff. Why? Why does the universe have this weird, like, it's structured, it's, it, there's patterns, but also wild creativity and possibility? I'll tell you why. The answer is simple. It's narwhals. <laughs> Do you realize we have unicorn whales on this planet? I mean, what the heck? We also have meerkats. They're the cutest little marsupials you've ever seen. We also have the... What is that, the tag, tag, tardigrade or something? It's a, they call it a water bear. It's actually microscopic, but when you blow it up, I mean, it looks like that. I mean, it looks like something from Star Wars. And it's real. You don't have to go to Mos Eisley Cantina. It's right there. But no, seriously, that's like exactly what wisdom is saying. We, we have a universe that's like this. Why? Because it brings joy, honestly. In order to have joy, in order to have delight, in order to have this sense of wonder and surprise and fun and excitement, you have to have some meeting between chaos, possibility, variety, and structure, unity, harmony. They have to come together in some weird way and mix together. And when they do, you get unicorn whales and meerkats and water bears. It's the next thing, your note sheets. A structured but creative world is perfectly suited for delight. Delight. Okay. I know. So you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, okay, kind of. I can see how maybe Proverbs 8 sort of looks like what physicists would say. But, but, you crazy Christians, I know all about you weirdos. Was it the next slide? Do I have that? Yeah. You crazy nut job Christians, look. I know that the universe is way older than 6,000 years, and you all think it's 6,000 years old. And I know that there's evolution going on, and you don't believe in evolution at all. And there's climate change, and you're deniers. And there's gender science, and you are stuck in binary modes of thinking. And there's people with mental health problems, but you refuse to give them psychiatric help because you guys are stuck in a weird reading of this weird book. Let me just say this. You're not totally wrong, but you're a lot wrong, if that's what you think. 
You're not totally wrong because there are uh, there are Christians and, and beloved brothers and sisters who would go along with all of that. But the thing is, there's also a lot who wouldn't. There's also a lot who would, you know, like have some, wait, wait, hold on a second. And I think the reason for that is, and maybe you don't know this, especially if you're new to the church, but really since the very beginning of the church, one of our very first um, theologians in the church, writing about 150 AD, you know, just like 100 years after Jesus, his name was Justin Martyr. And Justin Martyr, um, Justin the Witness, he came up with this idea called the two books. Do I have a picture of the two books? He's like, look, there's two books out there that tell us about the universe, right? There's the book, the Bible, that tells us, you know, God's revelation about his, God's special intervention in the world. And then there's also the book of nature, where we just look around and we can see everything there is, you know, to know, presumably whoever God is, the God that created this, this world, we can read something about him from the world that we're in, right? So when we look at the world that we see, we can start to see some interesting things, true things about God. Justin Martyr was not the only one who thought this way. Uh, St. Augustine, all the way to St. Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor, also thought this way. So did Martin Luther. So did John Wesley. In fact, pretty much every major Christian theologian has agreed with this. What this means is, Christians have two books. We got the science book, and we got the Bible. And, and we confess 100% these two books agree in everything. We confess that there is nothing in nature, nothing in science, that is in any kind of disagreement of any sort with what's in Scripture. Which I just demonstrated for you, by the way, in Proverbs 8. We see that Scripture sees the world exactly the same way that the scientists do. The problem, then, is not with science or with scripture. The problem is with us. Did you know that in uh, the 1880s, one of the, this is a true story, so when I was in college, I, uh, I was taking this class, it was a psych, psych 101 class, with uh, Easy Ed Palmer. They called him Easy Ed because uh, he didn't grade, he didn't do anything, he just had to show up. Didn't even really have to show up, just turn in some stuff. So I stopped going to his class about the second week of, of the, the quarter. And uh, around the eighth week, I showed up, and I was sitting next to my buddy Andrew. And I was like, so what's going on, man? He's like, oh, we're doing our, our, our projects. I was like, oh, okay, good. At that point, I still have nightmares about this. Dr. Palmer goes, all right, our next presentation is on phrenology by Thomas Bennett. I was like... So first... I like stumbled over, I pulled my book out of the bag, I flipped to the phrenology thing, I scanned a paragraph. It's like, okay. And then I walked down and for the next 10 to 15 minutes, phrenology, the science of brains. <laughs> uh, I got a C on my project to pass the class. <laughs> Easy Ed Palmer. Uh, phrenology is, is, is the, the belief, and that's, that's true, that all happens. I st like, it's been a while, but I, like, literally woke up in sweats. <laughs> like, Andrew Bostrom looking at me like, you, you don't know you have a project right now? Awesome. Okay. Phrenology, uh, it's, it's the, the idea that by measuring a skull, you can tell a person's, like, you know, height, weight, intelligence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This was so, super big in the 1800s. Like, it was so big that every 
wise scientists in the world agreed that phrenology was the way to know what a person thought, blah, 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 blah. Now we hear that and we're like, that's stupid because that doesn't make any sense. Like, you can measure, you know, skulls all you want. It just doesn't work. Science has this very interesting, uh, you know, history of going one way and then er, going another, then er, going another, then er, going another. Did you know that up until the 1970s, uh, scientists believed that the universe was infinite, that it had no beginning or end? Then Big Bang cosmology became very, very popular, and now is the, the accepted science. It was like, what this means is we're sitting here, we're really small people in a very large universe. So big it's almost incomprehensible. We're very small people in this very large universe. It might be, just possible, that we can't see it that great. I don't want to denigrate, you know, like being able to build rockets. That's pretty cool stuff. And I super want to, I definitely want to colonize Mars I'm 100% for that. You know, if we're, what, 22 trillion in debt? Let's just take another couple trillion and colonize Mars. Who's with me? That would be awesome. But, so I don't want to denigrate that. But I, at the same time, I also want to say, but given our history and given all the things that we thought we knew and now know we don't, it might be good to, to hesitate before we say, oh yeah, there's totally a multiverse and, you know, every possibility has obtained in some, that's what they say in the New York Times now. Like, that's the prevailing, either that or we're all living in a computer simulation. That's another one. Like, what this is, is we're really, like, it's the Matrix. They believe that now. Elon Musk believes that. Great. Maybe we should take a step back and be a little humble, I know, crazy, before we say we know everything about what the Book of Science says. And likewise, the interesting thing about Christian theology, I mean, of course, the one we all want to talk about, evolution, right? I teach uh, grad courses in seminary, and one of the things we talk about is creation. And I have students who have a wide variety of beliefs about the origins of the universe. I have people who confess more long lines of our church of like six days, 24 hours. I have people who believe in things like a gap theory where after Genesis 1, like billions of years happened. I have people who think that every single day of creation in Genesis 1 is actually a really long period of time. I have people who think that each one is like a... It's like a, it's, it's not necessarily explaining how it happened, but sort of why it happened. And then I have people who are full-blown theistic evolutionists. No, I'm not, there, there's theological problems with all of that, and we could talk about that, and that's, that's important. The point, though, is that Christians aren't just being like, eh, I hate science, I want to run away from the universe. No, Christians are like, I know these books agree I just need to figure out how. And that's, that's kind of a tough, it's a tough give and take. It's a little hard. Sometimes the, the Bible's hard to understand. And sometimes nature, the universe, is hard to comprehend. And it's tough for little people like us to make it all work together. And you're like, well, no. It's got to be this way. I'm sure. I'm sure that the universe is... How many billions of years old is it now? Do we know? It changes a lot. 
It's like 20 trillion bajillion years old, whatever it is. There's cosmic background radiation. Okay, fine. You're right. And, and as a result, you know, you can't be a part of faith. You just can't do it because... Well, hold on a second. Interestingly, interestingly, the scriptures themselves have a, a, a standard. Like saying, this is what it's all really about. And if you don't go here, you can't be on the Christian train. It's, it's really cool. I have it. It's in, it's in 1 Corinthians 15. Do I have it? Do I have it? Yes. Okay. This is uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, But if there is no evolutionary theory to explain human origins, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we've testified that he raised up Christ, he, which he didn't. If in fact the dead do not rise, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. If we don't have an evolutionary theory to explain human origins, you're still in your sins. That's what Christianity is about, right? That's not it. That's not right. No, no. I, next one. Next one. If there is no six-day creation to explain the beginning of the universe, then Christ... That, that doesn't ring. That doesn't ring right. Next. If there is no acknowledgement of human-caused anthropogenic global warming, then Christ is not risen. Eh, no, it doesn't sound right. Next. If there is no rejection of the autism-causing vaccines, then Christ... No, no, doesn't sound right. If there is no gender science breaking down all binaries and smoothing all things out into a... If there is no promotion of renewable energies, by the way, true fact, uh, now um, it's no longer cool, in case you were wondering, to support wind power. Yeah, it's not cool anymore. You know why? It kills birds. It's a slaughter. If you, go to, if you roll out to Palm Desert and you're, just, you're looking on the side and there's just, just bird carcasses everywhere. Vultures are feasting. You see them slamming into... Windmill after windmill. Like, how can we do this? Nuclear power, friends. Just kidding, I don't support anything. All right, next. But if there is no use of essential oils to, to, to fix your sore throat, no, that's not it. I know we're going to get there eventually. Oh, here we go. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. There it is. That's the one. Yep. You come here and you're like, you crazy people with your 6,000 years. You know what? Keep your... Don't worry about that. Because that's not what it hangs on. Like I said, I, got, I have friends who are full-blown theistic evolutionary theorists, and that's cool. I mean, I have issues with that. We can talk about that later. But that's not really what it all hangs on. What it hangs on is whether or not he came out of the grave. That's where Christianity rises and falls. Christian faith hangs on the resurrection, not any particular scientific viewpoint. Start there. Then worry about putting together the two books of science and faith. Now, um, what that really does is it says, hey, uh, you know, I'm happy to have... I, I'm, not, I'm not, you know commanding who believes what about, you know, origins 
to be in this church. I don't want to go there. But I do want to go to the place where you have to know what you think about whether or not Jesus came back. Because if he did, then it's all on the table. It's all on the table. Everything is. If Jesus rose from the dead, then it's possible that we live in a 6,000-year-old universe. Or it's possible that we live in a gap theory, blah, 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 whatever you want to do. It's all possible once you acknowledge the resurrection of Christ. And so the real question is, did he come back or not? I've been uh, reading a book with uh, our youth intern, Ryan. It's, uh, it's called Cold Case Christianity. It's a really good book. Um, I was skeptical at first, but I, I, it's winning me over. It's uh, this guy, Jay Warner Wallace. He's a, uh, a homicide detective. And he, his, his job is to, cold cases, he goes to decades-old murders, and he tries to figure out who the murderer was. That's his career. It's his, his job. He's an atheist. And he was encouraged to consider the claims of the resurrection. And through the book, he kind of shows you how he, he reads the Gospels, he looks at the historical records, he uses the kind of detective-type stuff that he does to assess whether or not this is real. And his point is, he even says it at one point, he's like, don't worry about any extraneous stuff. Focus on this, the fundamental, central claim of Christian theology. You do that, and if you come to the place I came to, which is, it's super reasonable to believe this man is alive, then, then you can start worrying about whether or not we have to, you know, have like gender science and climate change and all those, all that other stuff is going to follow and we can have conversations about that. But this is the thing where it all hinges. And likewise, if you're, you know, you're, you're a person of faith and you're like, it's this, it's this, it's this. May, may I just suggest from an evangelistic standpoint, let's step back from being like, we have to have this. And if you don't believe every single one of the... Dude, faith, belief, it's, it's a lifetime journey. When we're dealing with people who are skeptical about Christianity because of faith, let's not start with like, let's look at the fossil record. Instead, let's be like, did he or did he not rise from the dead? Because if he did, everything's different. Let's pray. Gracious God, we uh, confess that you're a God of incredible order and structure and pattern, and yet at the same time, variety and creativity and possibility. And in the middle of that, you create a universe, a, a universe that can be filled with delight and beauty. God, we confess that we're small people, that we don't have um, the perfect view of anything. And at the same time, we do cry out to know you and to know if you're real. And God, um, if there's anyone here who is, who is confused and, and isn't quite sure about whether or not you're real, and, and really it's, it's just, it comes down to evolution or it comes down to you know, climate change or any of those, God, I just ask that you would um, bring the idea of resurrection into our focus. That God, we would be focused on whether or not you came back, that you brought your son from death to life, and that in that you've created a world that we can understand and can know, even if only in a limited way. God, move your spirit um, to stir hearts, to encourage worship and love, and to know that you're good, to know that you're real, and to know that you save. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.